0: Listening to the Dr. Claude Kirchner Show. My name is Dr. Claude Kirchner, and we are here to serve organizational leaders and agile teams who strive for excellence and differentiation. I hope you enjoy the content. If you have any questions or would like some additional resources, please visit our website at www.archconsults.com. Enjoy. So again, operations is the t-shirts are being made, they're they're then being sold, we're then receiving cash from customers, that's cash flow from operations. Cash flow from investing is we take some of this excess money that we have, that we've created somehow, and we're investing in new business opportunities, we're investing in real estate, we're investing in whatever it is we're investing in, we're receiving our own return, we're becoming investors as a corporation or as a company. And then the third way that cash flow comes into the company is cash flow through financing, which is debt or equity financing. Three ways a company can create cash for somebody, operations, investing, and financing. So would we have done a better job understanding how much money we have in the bank to begin? Would we have at least looked at that money and said, okay. We have fifteen thousand dollars. He said, "Okay, how does this game operate? We spend money every week. What are we spending money on? We're spending money on? We spend money on employees. And how many weeks can we operate with just paying our employees? We could operate for about nine weeks without any sales, without any money coming in, and just money going out. And then we said, obviously, we have more costs than just our employees. We also have to pay for rent." And then we would have said, all right, we know we need to buy inventory. At what time would it be wise to buy this inventory? When did we buy it? Way too early. We purchased our inventory very early and held on to it without selling it. So we, we held on to product that cost us money that wasn't making us any money for a little bit too long. So our purchase to cash time frame was long. At least we didn't, we didn't know what it was, right? We didn't have any idea. But instead, we chose to spend the money without understanding that. Okay, when we buy this, when do we expect to sell it? Inventory is an asset, but the cost of inventory needs to be taken into consideration. The cost of storing it, the cost of purchasing it, the cost of holding it for an extended period of time. There's a cost to carrying inventory that needs to be taken into consideration. Remember, we're moving into managing cash flow conversations. And we're we're setting it up by understanding through the simulation how we could have done a better job thinking about our cash management. What else, in addition to our employees, in addition to our rent, in addition to our salary, in addition to some of the inventory, would we have taken into consideration when thinking about this venture? Don't think about cash going out. Now think about cash coming in. What should have been our initial goal from the very beginning? Price is good, but how about just the general concept of revenue? When are we going to attain revenue? Money coming in. So it's very easy when you have money in the bank to do what with it? To spend the money. There's a lot of things as a business we can spend the money on. But what we also need to project in addition to spending the money, which milestones are a big deal, is how are we going to get more money to come in? And I know that sounds intuitive, but I also know we didn't do a great job of doing that. What are the milestones? What are the goals? What are the key metrics that we have to put in place? so that customers will start paying us money so that cash is now inflowing into the company developing the product testing the market which some of the stuff we have to do design is important as well setting up the the channels for us to receive the payments is key and then marketing the product and then purchasing the inventory and then shipping the inventory and receiving cash so from the time frame of setting up the business to purchasing the the material, to selling the product, to shipping the product, to then receiving cash, is, is so. there's a lot that happens in between that. What do we need to do first? And what does this look like? Sometimes the marketing needs to come first. Sometimes you can sell the product without spending a lot of money on marketing. It depends. But what we're going to talk about is how do we plan that? How do we manage that? And if we do the marketing first, how much marketing do we have to do? How much cash needs to go out prior to us selling a product? What's our goal? Or can we sell some product without spending money on marketing? And if that's true, then we have to allocate or at least plan on money coming in, and possibly we can fund the marketing through the money coming in. Yeah, so we were were wondering, why do we go bankrupt? (laughs) And that's kind of how we set it up. And the reason why, objectively, the game ended when we did what? We paid ourselves $3,500 a month in salary. If you think about it, if you only had $15,000, that $3,500 a month was a major, one of the, the largest expenses. Is that managing cash flow matters? And as a, especially as a small business, a small venture, we have to take these things into consideration. Because the development stage and the startup stage are different. These are some of the things that we're doing in the development stage, the screening business ideas, preparing the business plan, and paying financing. When When I give you $10,000 for your business, what do I expect you to tell me you're going to do? So you're going to have to have a plan. You're going to have to have an idea as to what it is you're going to do with that money. How are you going to manage your money? Every investor is going to want to know that. Bring it to the point now you've convinced them that your business is a viable business that you have a financial projection to give them an equitable return on their investment. You're smart enough and trustworthy enough to give this money to. Now, the next question is okay, once you have the money, what then? And you have to already know that prior to getting the money. So, that's in the development stage. Startup stage, now you're at the point where you likely already have customers, you likely already have some product market fit. Now, you're choosing the organization form, you're preparing initial financial statements you're obtaining first-round financing. Survival stage is you're selling product, you have customers, you you have a demand, you're now operating the business. You monitor financial performance, you project cash needs, that's what we just talked about there. We were at the startup phase in this particular simulation. We have already got the space, we already have some level of relationship with our manufacturer of our product, we already have financing, we have ourselves. So what stage are we? Are we in a development stage? No. Are we in the startup stage? Sort of. Or more now into the survival stage, the business. I'd say we're, we're in between startup and survival. But there has to be enough margin for it to be viable and sustainable. And it depends on cash flow from what? Because we have cash flow from operations, we have cash flow from investing, and we have cash flow from financing. Yeah, so eventually, positive cash flow is needed, but some companies like Uber, not they're not generating cash, but they're putting cash in different sources, and I mean, they are actually eventually generating a ton of cash, but they're also raising money, they're also, also selling shares, they're creating some cash from operations, but they're then issuing more shares, so they can be creative with the ways in which they have cash. Flow. Cash flow eventually needs to be positive, but cash flow does not need to be positive in order for the venture to survive. Eventually, it'll catch up on. And the point of somebody investing in your company is for you to eventually increase your cash flow it to be positive, and for them to receive a return on investment. So again, operations is the T-shirts are being made. they're They're then being sold. We are then receiving cash from customers. That's cash flow from operations. Cash flow from investing is we take some of this excess money that we have that we've created somehow, and we're investing in new business opportunities, we're investing in real estate, we're investing in whatever it is we're investing in, we're receiving our own return. We're becoming investors as a corporation or as a company. And then the third way that cash flow comes into the company is cash flow through financing, which is debt or equity financing. Three ways a company can create cash for ourselves: operations investing and financing short-term cash planning sales schedules purchase schedules wage and commission schedules cash budget so this is what we just did our cash planning tools are okay how much do we expect to sell how much do how much in inventory do we have to purchase how many people are we paying that's just wages and commission our cash budget is just a tool that that plans for this kind of stuff but this operating cycle which I'll try to give an example. We had a client in South Africa. He would sell paper, a small business, and he didn't have a lot of customers. But when you go to South Africa, you want to come back with some sort of South African thing. And he his thing, which he was selling tourists was paper. So it was cool, We come back, South African paper, it's like a different kind of paper. And he had a process where he would go to the water and he would cut these weeds for the paper basically cut his material and he had no idea what his operating process was uh, he just did it. the problem was when he got a lot more sales he wasn't capable of fulfilling those orders because of his operating cycle he, he could not keep up with the demand and therefore he lost customers so he had two day laborers which essentially are they're paid cash and so he'd go and take the the weeds from the from the water, he'd bring them back to the shop. In the shop, they had this process where they kind of wash the weeds, they would steam them, they would create this paper product. After they created the paper product, they would have to package it, and after they packaged it, they had to go to the store and give it to the store, Um, and then prior to all of that happening, they had to get the order, they had to um, basically sell the product, they had to develop the relationship, so they did all of this work. And even when they gave them the paper, their contract was contingent upon it selling off the shelf. So they didn't get paid anything. So from the time he sold the thing, had the conversation, developed the relationship, cut the weed, brought it back, paid his day laborers, made the product, packaged the product, bought the product, put it on the shelf, he's gotten paid nothing. What that is happening? How could he operate without understanding his operating cycle and understanding his cash needs, materials, work in progress, that's the, the, the water and the, the leaves and going like this and the day laborers that's making the paper and then the finished good, okay, we got something that's great. Then he is receivables so basically he's giving his product to someone but, and he's, he's probably valuing that once he gives it to them at sales plus his cost. So I'm saying I'm selling this this bundle of paper for $10. So he said, I made a sale, put it on the rack. Technically he didn't make a sale, he's assuming he's gonna make a sale. And technically he's received no money. So then he gets the cash. So the question is how long is this process? And now you're getting into the thought process of an entrepreneur and how important it is to understand how long does this sit in inventory? How long does it take me to make the product? How much money am I, am I spending to make this happen? Inventory to sale, sale to cash. So, this is interesting to think about. If you have the inventory sitting there, how long does it take to then sell it? He had the inventory from the time he made it, not from the time it was on the shelf, but from the time he made it. So, they, it could have been sitting in his shop, which was the back of his house and garage, for a certain period of time, and he could not have brought it to the shelf so then once he brings it to the shelf then when do people buy it that is a question we don't know we had to figure that out so he could figure it out so that he could run more live business and then once it's sold off the shelf from the store great now a customer bought it left with it paid money to the store owner when is that store owner now going to pay me (laughs) so that is from the time it's sold to the time we get the cash so every industry operates a little differently in how they handle these exchanges with their customers and what we have to know is that it's important and also a lot of times industries operate on credit they assume good business practice is to issue customers credit for hey you want to buy some books i'll go ahead and i'll ship you the order i'll send you an invoice and you pay me when you can i want the money sooner rather than later but you don't have to pay me right now before i send you books. Because you're a regular repeat customer, so understanding these credit terms, how they work. Of course, the book company might not even be paying the, the their manufacturer until they make a sale. So they may have just sold it to you. Therefore, they go to the people that they bought it from and say, "Okay, now I'll pay you." Whatever that looks like. So there's this constant float of money going on. It's it's messy, but it's it's a part of business. Well, so it's, there's hard costs and then there's soft costs. His time. He may not account that as like a hard cost, but he still has to eat too. Yes, I mean, there's a part of his, his uh, lifestyle that has to be factored into the conversation and the cost of the business. So that's a thing too. He may not be just like as owners, and that's why the simulation is so fun. We don't have to pay ourselves. And when we chose to pay $3,500 for the simulator, we could have said zero and the company still would have operated. So there's something that we have to pay ourselves. That's probably the cover for that and to account for that in the business. Yeah, but you can see the times here. This it takes a lot of time. So this is cash planning and cash management. That's why it's important to understand that. The reason why we're talking about this is because when we project our financials, when we think about how much money we want for our business, we have to think about these things. If we knew what we knew now about the t-shirt company and how much money it takes, we probably would have asked our investor for more than 15000 dollars Probably would have said, can we please have 30? <laughs> we we know that eventually we're going to be providing a return, but that extra 30 will give us cushion to design and develop and create a good product and hire some more employees and then be able to launch the business better. Or not, it will hedge against our probability of going bankrupt. So if we knew that. Prior to pitching to the investor, that would have been good information. And that's the point of understanding this managing cash flow prior to valuation, prior to asking for money from our investors, so that once we have the money, we can spend it accordingly and be successful. It's not everyone thinks, oh, well, we just got a $40,000 investment from an investor. That doesn't mean you you have $40,000 more as you, the individual, No, That means the business has more time to operate and hopefully provide a return. It's all about the investment. Sometimes the more is not good, because there's a cost of capital, which we'll talk about now. But what what are the costs of capital? Let's talk about debt first, because debt's easy. Let me talk about that. What's the cost of debt? Interest. The cost of debt is interest. What the banks do, and this is the whole conversation about interest rates, and we can get into that if you'd like, is the banks are investors of money. They take the money that people deposit into the bank, and they do what with it? It's not like Scrooge McDuck, who's got this big vault with a bunch of money sitting there. They invest. They invest the money themselves. Banks are the biggest investors in bonds and U.S. Treasuries there are. It's unbelievable. If they're if they're investing their money, they're hoping that they're making a return, plus the interest they're paying them, which essentially to them is like a fee. It's a fee for lending out their money to other people. So they're they're investing a portion of their money in stocks and bonds, and they're investing another large portion of their money in businesses and mortgages. They're giving people money, issuing debt, so that they can make a percentage on interest. So as as the, the government, the Fed, takes interest rates and rises them, what does that do to the banks? Are they issuing more loans or less loans? Less loans because the cost of loans has gone up, right? So the demand for loans goes down. As interest at 6.5% minimum, you know, 3.5% is a little bit more attractive. More people are okay with paying a fee to the bank, 3.5%. They're not as okay with paying that. But if they were to issue that, the bank that has more money, to then invest back into U.S. Treasuries, bonds, this kind of stuff. So the government is controlling the debt by controlling the interest rates. And then what's happening right now, just to change the subject, they're increasing this so that there's less money here because they know there'll be less money here. So therefore consumer spending decreases and therefore inflation slows down or there could potentially be deflation. Inflation is rising, interest rates are rising, and those are two wild factors that drive the economic decisions of people. Or you could just say it like this, the cost of debt is increasing. The cost of me going to the bank and getting a loan, to me, is higher because interest rates are higher. That's why we're talking about cost of capital. Formal historical accounting procedures include explicit records of debt, interest and principal, and dividend capital costs. However, no provision is made to record the less tangible expenses of equity, and this is where we'll shift, equity is a lot different and more challenging to understand the cost. of it. Because equity, now we're talking about something called risk, we're talking about opportunity costs. We're talking about where else can I put my money that I could potentially make a better return. That's why equity is a lot more challenging and more subjective To talk about, and most of the time in the beginning phases of a venture, it's funded by the entrepreneurs, it's funded by angel investors, it's funded by bootstrapping, and it's funded by venture capitalists, which is an equity source. Debt sources really don't become available or as more readily available until the survival stages of a business. So in the development startup stages, there's not a lot of debt capable. We as the entrepreneur, we can use our personal credit cards. We can go and ask to mortgage our house, which is, again, a personal way to finance it, but a bank, isn't. we don't have historical financials, we don't have assets that a bank can loan against. The sources of capital for a startup in the development stage and the startup stage is, again, personal financials, bootstrapping, equity, or angel investors. And when we pitch, we can ask for debt finance. If that's how we want to pitch it. But well, we better demonstrate what assets we have and, and what credibility we have paying that loan back. Or, which is most likely the case, we can issue equity. We can issue shares in our company based on the valuation and we can tell the people what we're going to do with that money when they pay us for those shares. So when they give us the million dollars that we asked for because we valued our company at 10 million, we're issuing 10% equity, therefore we want a million dollars, here's what we're going to do with a million dollars. Here's what we're gonna pay back that money five years from now, and that million dollars is then gonna be worth five million dollars. So then the question is that five million dollars, how much is that, so you get a a four million dollar return, right, you invest a million, you get five million. That's four million dollars. So the difference between a million and five million is four million, what's the return? What's the, what is that, what is that the expected return? So if we think about, the cost of that, could it be zero? Yeah. What if that return, instead of a times times five, is a times two? So you get from a million to two million. What if they could have taken that million put it somewhere else and made three million? There's a cost to that. So we have to think about some of these realities. What is financing? How do we get money? So financing is debt or equity. But how do we get debt? What do we do? We take out a, a loan, typically from a bank. Very simple. Loans are easy to understand. They come with terms, which is amount of time and interest rate. That's debt. What is equity? What you're saying is the difference in assets and liabilities is your equity. Yes, that's a part of it. But that's not that's not has nothing to do with finance. Equity. <laughs> so when in a, a guy is standing out there at Shark Tank, and they are saying, We have this great product, we want your money. Okay, then the people giving the money want equity. They want a piece of, they're not just giving the money away for free. So essentially what the organization is doing is they're selling equity. They're selling a piece of their business for money and the people giving the money expect that money to be rented and given back in a return, a form of return. There's two ways, at least from financing cash flows, it's debt. You go to a bank, $100,000 on a loan. They give you $100,000. They expect you to pay it back over two years. How many dollars a month that is. It's a payment, like mortgage, like student loan, whatever that looks like. Then you have equity. You're basically giving nothing other than a piece of paper. <laughs> and interest in future returns, beginning phases of entrepreneurship, understanding equity is huge. But once you understand this, so now you're looking at it from the investor's perspective. Every entrepreneur needs to look at it from the ventures perspective. You have employees, you have small business owners, you have big business owners, and then you have investors. If you read the book, Rich Dad Poor Dad, this is how they break it down. Being an employee is okay. Being a small business owner, you're likely gonna be more wealthy, you have more opportunities. Being a big business owner, now you're playing a big game. Becoming an investor means you're now buying portions of these other two. Thinking about it from an investor's perspective only makes you a better employee, a better small business owner, and a better big business owner. So now we're framing it from the lens of an investor. When I give you, as an investor, $100,000, I expect a portion of your company. When I give you $100,000, what do I expect you to have already done with your organization? Valued your company. You've estimated the amount that your company is worth. Because obviously, if I'm giving you $100,000, I'm telling you, and I say I want 10%, what am I telling you your company's worth? A million dollars. What if you think your company's worth $10 million? And I say, I'll give you $100,000 for 10% of your company. So I'm telling you, I'll give you money, but I think your company's worth one-tenth of what you think it's worth. So going into the conversation, you better know what your company's worth. So prior to going and getting debt, Prior to going and issuing equity, we as entrepreneurs need to do what? Create a value. How do we value our venture? Three ways you can value something. One is the estimated current value of future returns. In order to do that, we have to look at our returns, we have to project out what we think we're going to be making based on our research, based on product market fit, based on our sales price, based on our projected cost. This is what we believe we're going to do over the next five years. So that's one way of thinking. And then you discount, all. you add up all of that money, year one, year two, what we're gonna make, year three, and then you take the total of that money and you bring it back to present value, net present value. It seems complicated, it's not. There will be a lot of assumptions that we're gonna make on our sales, our revenue, our cost, but that's okay. We have to make the assumptions because we don't know what they're but we have to be as good as possible making those assumptions because the investors are going to want to know, blah, 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 blah. Again, that alludes back to the original point I tried to make of what are you going to do with that $10,000? Well, I'll tell you, based on my projections, here, here, and here, we're going to have to hire employees. Here, here, and here, we're going to have to buy material. Okay, great, thank you for answering. Number two is something called comparables. There's 15 businesses just like yours with similar revenue, similar costs. Those businesses just sold for X amount of dollars. So we're gonna take the average of those businesses that have sold and we're going to figure out what yours is. sold. This happens a lot in real estate. The other way is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization is a form of something that comes from an income statement. It's really cash. That the company can earn, and then you have a multiple, and the multiple depends on the industry. For times four, EBITDA, a multiple, EBITDA, an annual EBITDA times four. This was this was valued. Some people valued at 3.7, some people valued at 4.5. We ended up selling here based on negotiations, based on other industry standards, based on projected future returns. That's a very simple way to value a company. And the other way to do it, which is really the book value, is the assets minus the liabilities equals book. That doesn't take into consideration future expected returns. That's just like a liquidity value. But sometimes investors take that into consideration too. And certainly I'll tell you who takes into consideration is bankers. Because bankers want to know if the S hits the fan, what do I have? But we need to understand all of them, eventually at some point, as business-minded professionals. We need to know that everybody, depending on, and again, this is why this question is so loaded. The valuation depends on the entrepreneur, the opportunity, the industry, and it also depends on the investor and the investor's strategy. What am I willing? What do I want to do as an investor? Do I want something risky and I want high returns, or am I just looking for something that's uh, more sustainable, more less risky? More what's the word I'm looking for? Consistent and, and therefore I want I need less returns. So that investor would be willing to pay for a company that is fairly consistent. Where an investor that's looking for high returns isn't really wanting to, to value a consistent, steady company at a high rate because that's not their strategy. So they'll value it differently, where they won't pursue it at all, which the value to them is zero. Customers aren't assets, they're not assets according to the accounting statement. You don't you don't see on the balance sheet customers worth a million dollars, and you also don't see brand worth a million. It's not it's not a tangible asset. According to generally accepted accounting principles, assets are cash, real estate, securities, uh, furniture, uh, inventory. Like these trucks, these are assets. If you if you ever sell your business for book value, you, you did not sell your business. You liquidated your business. Book value is is never, it's not a way to value a business, but again, it's something to take into consideration when thinking about business value. Understanding what the book value is versus what you're paying for a business, because you're paying for the expectations of future returns. But if God forbid, all of the expectations of future returns, if you bought a company and the owner left and all your customers left you the very next day, they all canceled their contracts and you were left with nothing and you needed to sell everything, you would sell it for the book value. Hopefully that would never happen and the business sales and equity agreements the shareholder agreements it all has stipulations to control for that kind of stuff where that should never happen inflation is a rising price is not offset by increasing quality of the goods or services being purchased so quality is still the same prices are are high that's inflation inflation premium is the average expected inflation rate over the life of a risk-free loan i'm expecting a discount rate looks like 10 percent, but here in year one my money is worth less, and it's worth less, then it's worth less, and it's worth less, 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 less. So I'm basically saying that my money today is worth a million dollars. If I did nothing with it, let it sit under my mattress, next year, that money is no longer worth a million dollars. There is an inflation risk to it. It's now worth $970,000. Isn't that crazy? And that would just be a 3% inflation rate so that there's a risk to that if you, know, you add that on to the cost the prime rate is, is kind of where, where the banks focus interest rate charged by banks to their highest quality lowest default risk when you look at a prime rate, this is like the least amount of interest the bank has to charge for an awesome loan like this loan is going to pay them back they're going to get this money back but they have to issue at least a certain amount of, of rate currently it would be interesting to know what is the prime rate that that's what the fed can control the regulation of that rate so, these are commercial loans to businesses so that's primary that senior debt is debt secured by a venture's assets subordinated debt is debt with an inferior claim relative to senior debt to venture assets so basically senior debt these take precedence over subordinated debt so if it's senior debt A bank loan is typically senior debt. You have to repay a bank loan. Accounts payable, maybe not as senior. Debt with an inferior claim relative to senior debt to venture asset. Just know that the most important stuff that gets serviced first is senior debt. Legally, contractually, more messed up or wrongdoing, or say illegal, if you do not pay senior debt. So real interest rate, how much interest am I paying? Then you have inflation, expectation, a default risk, liquidity premium, and maturity premium. This 16% is basically what a person that's giving you the hundred thousand dollars. This is like the minimum percent of return that they expect. So if you got real interest rate, inflation ex- expectations, default rate, liquidity premium, and maturity premium, and investors saying, "Hey, listen, you can't demonstrate to me this is a good number to know when you do your valuation. You're not showing me an annual return of at least 16% on my hundred thousand dollars on the website." I'm better off keeping my money in the bank. Investment risk, what? The chance for probability of financial loss from a venture's investment. What is the investment risk that the partner, the equity issuer, or the person that's giving the money for the equity is expecting what would be an example of a risky company to buy into? We have Colton Creamery, Google, likely less risky, less tangible assets, but we I mean, have Tesla, some more tangible exactly. assets, somewhat volatile. So there's a risk profile to every investment. So that investment risk, and this is why this bank that had failed recently, you know, the one in right. Silicon Valley, they weren't paying enough attention to their risk investment profile. They were investing in companies that were high risk or they weren't valuing the companies appropriately. So that's part of the reason why some of their, when their valuations were off, they were then insolvent. They didn't have enough assets to cover some of their liabilities, and some of their investments weren't providing the returns they had expected. And then when people run on the bank and want their money, and you can't give them the money, that's how banks fail. So they weren't taking as good of a consideration for their investment. If the government bails out that bank, because the reality is that bank went bankrupt because that bank doesn't have their money anymore. That bank, your money gone. The bank invested it, in, it's gone. Now the question is, does the government give the bank the money to give you your money? Understanding that you can't just take people's money and consolidate it and call yourself a bank. There's there's stipulations to that. But banks are private institutions. Banks are not owned by the government. What happens when private institutions fail? Gone. This is this is what business is. Business is a private institution. The business fails, it disappears. You guys remember Blockbuster? Do you remember uh, Bear Stearns and Enron? These were big, huge companies that now no longer exist. They fail. And all of the money that was in Enron, that people had these shares and their retirements, gone. From one day it was a million, the next day it's zero. So that's this is risk. This is the world we live in. If you have money and cash in a bank, unlikely it's really safe. If it's in a community bank, it's a little less less safe than a global bank. So these big global banks are more prone to getting bailed out by the government than would a local community bank. There, there's The US Treasury is the US Treasury, which basically has the uh, currency for our economy and it funds the government. So that's where our taxes go into. So that in itself is sort of like a bank. The government has to say that and has to do that so that we have some confidence in our financial system. So the chances of it happening are very low, but there is a chance that it can happen. And you have to realize that. But there's an investment risk. Putting your money in a bank, if you're putting it in a, in a cash account, there's not a lot of risk. If you're putting it in a stock account, there's more risk. If you're putting it into a bond account, you're putting it into US Treasury, it's a little bit less risk than stocks. If you're putting it into a small business or a big business, there's risk. That's what investment risk is. A widely accepted measure of risk is dispersion of possible outcomes around the expected return of investment, the standard deviation of the possible investment returns. Investment one, the chances of it failing, 20%, zero. And so that same investment, the chances of it doing really well in a booming economy, 40%. The chances of it exceeding well above and beyond whatever, is what was it, 10%, 40%, then you have 50% here. So you take the expected returns, you take the expected risk of each one of those things happening, and then you develop a risk profile. Do you know that investors do that all the time, every day? Every single one of us in this room do the big data have risk profiles. That's how they come up with our interest rates at banks. And what do they, how do they develop our risk profiles? how we spent money in the past, how we paid back debt in the past, how much money we have expected into the future. They do a very similar thing that we're talking about right now. So let's say the possibility of a down economy is 20%. The possibility of an average economy is 30%. The possibility of a great economy is, let's just say 50%. And then how is the business going to perform? In a down economy, it's going to lose 10%. How is the business going to perform in an average economy? It's going to gain 20%. How is the business going to perform in a great economy? It's going to gain 30%. What are the expected returns on the business? 20%. I give 10. A 30%. Is there is there a, a possibility of these things happening? Each one of these things. Do we know what the future is going to look like? No. So, so just based on this alone. It's 20 plus 30 is 50 minus 10. Our expected return is to be 40% divided by 3. What's 40% divided by 3? It's like 17%. That's the expected return. There's a weighted possibility of each one of these things happening, and we have to take that risk into consideration. So based on what we showed you earlier, 17% a good return, and there's a chance we could make 30%, right? There's a chance we could lose 10. But is 17 a good return? No, it's minimal because we have real interest, we have inflation, we have default risk, We get nothing. If you guys wanted to invest in Colson right now, how would you do that? You would have to figure it out. You'd have to make phone calls. You'd have to know somebody. You'd have to get in touch with a broker. You can't just take money, $100, and go and invest it in Colson cream. It's a private equity market. You have to do a deal with somebody companies that really aren't interested in, this would be like your local pizza shop, local restaurant, this would be a family business down the corner, corporations whose stock is not publicly traded, there's no franchise opportunities, whatever that looks like, and then you got publicly traded stock investors. There's an exchange that I could go on with a hundred bucks and I can buy probably a, a thousand different companies right now, a hundred bucks. Fidelity trading software, some platform, you can be a shareholder. So that's publicly traded versus closely held versus private equity investors. It's a lot of companies out there. You think that everyone's on the stock market. They're not. These are smaller companies run by families, entrepreneurs. They have control over it. They're not willing to relinquish control. It's when you release, when you sell a company or when you bring in partners, you lose a portion of control over the daily operations, over how the money's spent, over the different bank accounts, over. Information sharing, like you have to share information with them, that's that's control. Information is power. That's a scary proposition if you go in a partnership with the wrong people. So organized security exchange, if you if you have a big company and you issue shares, you have to register those shares with the SEC. But there is not just a, it's not just an informal, hey man, give me a handshake, we're good. There, there's like an official document that shows that you're a shareholder for legal purposes and there's a, some rules and regulations to that. So when these venture capitalists and other people you know, give money to get shares, it's not just giving them a piece of paper that says, I owe you one. There's a, a regulation to it. Market capitalization is really sort of the value of a, an organization at a current or a particular time. You'll see a lot of times, easy for people to run these algorithms to understand, what are these public companies worth? Why could they give a market cap on public companies? Because the information is being shared. Because the information is publicly available. That's how they can give these market caps. So Google currently has a market cap of $1.316 trillion. All of their shares added up with all of the value of whatever share is $1.36 trillion versus, let's see, Apple? 2.54 2.54 trillion dollars. So Apple's worth more than Google. They have there's the shares outstanding are equated to a higher market cap than Apple. Doesn't mean it's worth more. Just means currently in the market, their current market cap. See what Nike's worth? Much less, 182 billion dollars. This is the S&P 500. is the 500 largest companies, which changes.